You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Um, I want to share with you a statement that somebody shared with me once um, at a very crucial time in my life spiritually. So um, I'm not going to get into too many details, but a lot of you know my story. But for those of you who don't, um, there was a season in my life, like middle school into high school, where um, I would have said that I confessed Jesus as Savior, but he definitely wasn't Lord of my life. There were pieces of my life that, um, you know, I was, I was like an outwardly probably very good kid, I guess, like behavior-wise, everything was marginally okay, except for some of these pieces of my life, which I kept back from Jesus, and I kept very well kind of hidden behind this wall that I had sort of constructed. And um, somebody said something to me um, around about age 16 or 17 that really was one of those thoughts that maybe you've had these where they just say it and it just like cuts you. And... Um, it was very strong, and it was very well-intentioned. It was very beautiful. Happened to be my dad, and here's what he said. He said, Brandon, there's a big difference between Jesus being your Savior and being the Lord of your life. And that was one of those statements that, for me, at that point in my life, just honestly, God used to change the direction of my life. Um, there's a big difference between Jesus being your Savior and being Lord of your life. So this is our third week in our seven-week teaching series, um, just simply called What Jesus Said. And in week one, we were in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, You've heard it said, but I say to you. This is him just upending morality, pushing way back or way past behavior and into belief. And he says these crazy things like, It's not enough for you to not cheat on your wife. You can't even want to. It's not enough for you to not murder your neighbor. Like, everybody knows that's okay. You can't even get angry with them. And we go, oh my gosh, like, if that's the case, like, what hope do I have? I need Christ's righteousness. I need something better than me. And that's the point. Week two, last week, we talked about what Jesus meant when he said these things like, pick up your cross and follow me, just the reality of persecution and suffering in the Christian life. And so right out of the gate, just these really two strong calls to discipleship. Um, and it's easy to see if you're reading the Gospels that Jesus really freed and motivated some people, but he really angered others. And so this morning, we're going to take a turn toward the practical because it is well and good enough to say, yes, Jesus is my Savior. Like, yes, I'm trusting on him to get me to heaven, but is he Lord of my life? There's a big difference between I'm trusting him then and I'm trusting him for now. And so practically, um, we're going to be looking at um, a portion in Scripture, John chapter 11, that John wrote for us to close the gap between this idea of Jesus being my Savior and Jesus being Lord of my life. So um, you can turn there, flip there if you want to, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to have some Scripture references for you. So John chapter 11. So if you're brand new to reading the New Testament, or brand new to even reading your Bible, you should know that there are, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, if it's helpful, think about it like this, that these are four biographers that God used to shine light on Jesus in different ways. Each has their own take on Jesus. They don't contradict each other. Rather, God uses them to complement each other. Um, and this is how I kind of imagine it, that like there are four different stage lights 
shining different aspects on Jesus. And because of their different angles, their different backgrounds, um, their different personalities, they all bring out different things in who Jesus is. So for the last two weeks, we've been in Matthew. Now, Matthew is a very Jewish gospel. Matthew is rooted in Jewish theology. And so he wrote his whole gospel aimed at a Jewish audience. And so he talked about Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Messiah is who he kind of casts Jesus as. Well, John is a little bit different. John's writing to a wider audience, and John, it's very important for him to show that Jesus is the Son of God. And to get to that point, John lays out his gospel really intentionally. The first half of John's gospel is built on seven scenes, or theologians call them seven signs, that John uses to show us that Jesus does things that nobody else does because he is who nobody else is. Is. So what are these seven scenes? Just let me read them to you. Um, turning water into wine in the wedding of Cana. That's John chapter 2. Cleansing the temple, also in John 2. Jesus does this long-distance healing of a nobleman's son in John chapter 4. He heals a lame man in John chapter 5. He feeds 5,000 people in John chapter 6. He raises or He heals a blind man in John chapter 9. And then where we're going to be today, this seventh sign is he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And if this is helpful for you, also you can think about these seven signs as like a snowball on the top of a mountain that as you kind of push it over, it starts to gain more and more speed and it gets bigger and bigger. So Jesus starts with this very simple, almost intimate miracle or sign in John chapter 2 with turning water into wine at a wedding. And then he starts healing people and these healings become more public and they get bigger and bigger and bigger until John 11, where it's this unavoidable idea that Jesus is doing things that nobody else can do because he is who nobody else is. And so toward the end of his gospel, last little point, and then we'll, we'll get in. John actually kind of tips his cards and he shows us his hand a little bit when he says this in John chapter 20. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He says, but these are written. So he shows you why he's writing his gospel. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John is aiming. He's like, I want you to believe in who Jesus is. And if I could just grab that and push it forward for us today, um, that's my heart for you. Um, I don't know, you know, everyone who's watching, obviously, and I don't know what you really think about Jesus, but I know that what our world needs most is a very clear picture of who Jesus is. What we need is we need belief that leads to life. And that's what John is going to ask us to focus on today, especially in John chapter 11. So John chapter 11 is five scenes that happen over four days. So let's get to it. Scene one, John chapter 11. We're going to take a look right in verse one. Here's how he starts. He says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Martha, or Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, this business of like, Lord, the one that you love is ill. This is not just like a simple report. This isn't like a quick little news flash. This is like a child alerting their parent that something is burning in the kitchen. Like, 
hey, we need you to do something. You need to know this is happening. Lord, the one that you love is ill. That's a whole lot more than a statement of fact. Lord, the one that you love is ill. We should hear urgency underneath that. And if you're one of the 12 disciples standing there, there's, there's also this subtext because that comment doesn't just get launched out there. They're probably going, okay, Jesus, how is this going to go? Or maybe like, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? Or maybe even most pressing, like, Jesus, is he going to die? And it's interesting that Mary and Martha don't directly ask Jesus to come. That could be for a couple of reasons. It could be because, like, maybe they're conscious of the danger that this would put him in. Um, He had recently received death threats from the religious leaders in Bethany, and so they don't want to put him in harm's way. That could be it. It could be because... You know, maybe they're making the assumption, like, well, if we just tell him, he'll, he'll kind of know what to do. So maybe like the soft sell. It could be maybe they're counting on Jesus' resourcefulness. Like, like we said, he had just healed a nobleman's son from long distance. So maybe long distance healing isn't a barrier for Jesus. So maybe a similar situation here. But whatever their reason, they're waiting on Jesus to make the first move. And knowing their minds and knowing the minds of the disciples, presumably standing there, Jesus jumps in and he says, verse 4, he says, This illness does not lead to death. So what is that? That's one part prophecy, one part promise. And Jesus does two things at the same time. Number one, he names their worst fear, death. And who said anything about death? We're just talking about illness. He names their worst fear, but then, get this, he immediately declares his supremacy and sufficiency over it. But here's what I find interesting. It's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say Lazarus won't die. He just says death is not the end. But here's the important part for us to catch. He just says this won't end in death. It kind of begs the question like, okay, well then how is this going to end Jesus? And we'll get there, but just in a couple of seconds we'll get there. But for now, with Jesus, here's what John wants us to understand. With Jesus, we need to be very careful calling that which is not the end, the end. We need to be very careful pronouncing finality on something when Jesus is still working. Hold on to that thought. Back to the text, John 5. Here's what he says, or 11.5. He says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, why that detail? Why the emotional window? Why does John include that? What does he want us to know? Why make a point of Jesus' affection for these three siblings? It's almost like an unexpected detail, especially with what follows in verse 6 where he says, So, like because he loved them, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's odd, right? That's not what we would have expected. Here's what we would have expected. Like, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, verse 5. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he hightailed it out of town and he booked it to Bethany. Doesn't say that. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything and he went there. But it doesn't say that. Now he loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he sent the disciples ahead of him. Nope. Complete radio silence. The text just says, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. And not for like a couple of hours to like formulate his thoughts and rally the disciples and like prepare a really good sermon or something. Like, no, the text tells us that he stayed where he was for how long? Two days longer. 
because he loved him. That's a really strange way to show somebody that you love them. To not heal, to not make right, to not push the darkness back. I would understand if the story went, you know, it wasn't his time yet and so he stayed or because it was dangerous and so he stayed. But John is as perplexing here as he is seemingly merciless. He loved him and so he stayed. His love held him back. His love for Lazarus kept him from Lazarus. His love for Lazarus kept him from doing what everybody thought he should do and knew that he could do. Quick question, and this is not the main point of the narrative, but it's worth pulling off to the side to ask, do you ever feel like God's keeping his distance from you? Do you ever feel like he's just giving you the silent treatment? Do you ever feel like God's just taking his sweet old time? I do, a lot of times. And I think the important point right here anyway, before this develops any further, is to understand that God's distance, God's timing, and God's silence do not negate God's love. And with that, the curtain falls on scene one. Two days go by until Jesus finally says, okay, let's go. Scene two, we're going to start in verse 18. Here's what he says. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that when Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. So quick little background here. John gives us some geographical context in case we're unfamiliar with the local layout around Judea. And let's be honest, 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, most of us are. And so John tells us, he told us a chapter earlier, actually, that Jesus was attending the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. This is another word for Hanukkah. So it's December. It's the latter part of the year. They had been in Bethany before, but they left because of the rising threat on Jesus's life. The pressure around Jesus was building. And as we'll see in a couple of moments, it won't be long before the religious leaders start talking about how to kill him. And so they head to Jerusalem and Hanukkah. They're celebrating this wonderful wintertime holiday where God's people celebrate God's deliverance and protectiveness over them as a people group. December in Jerusalem, though, is part of the rainy season where um, it rains on average about an inch and a half a day for all the entire month. The village of Bethany is over here, um, probably no more than like a dozen households. It's a really small town, and it's about two miles east of Jerusalem. To put that in context, that's like for the distance from here, North Canton Chapel, to Washington Square, just down on Maple Street. And with sharp inclines and steep declines in and out of the city, the walk would have taken about 45 minutes. Add the rain and the mud, and while this certainly isn't an easy walk, it wasn't a very long walk. But on the way, John gives us an insight into something. He wants to see this really powerful, semi-private conversation between Martha and Jesus. Here's the scene. Mary's back at home with a house full of mourners. Which, interestingly, in Jesus' day, you could actually hire yourself out as a mourner, like a professional mourner. The idea was it would add dignity to the deceased if there was a lot of people there. Um, so, hearing, though, that Jesus is finally on the way, Martha comes out to meet him, which is such a Martha move. Remember, this is Martha we're talking about. This, like, busy, bossy, and bitter Martha. Like, 
My sister is sitting there. I'm in the kitchen. Jesus, tell her to help me, Martha. This is like, Mary, stop staring at Jesus and make yourself useful, Martha. This is like the type A driver, proactive. If you want something done, do it yourself, member of this little sibling trio. And when she finally gets to Jesus, she chucks this at him square in the face. Verse 21, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that emotionally laden two words, if you. Stop for a second. What do you hear under that? If you. There are oceans of emotions underneath those words. Those two words are the most raw, like tender, vulnerable, gutsy human words in this entire story because they live at the intersection of belief and unbelief. If you. So on one hand, there's like this guttural, longing for what didn't happen. Like these two sisters just lost their brother. There's this profound pain that they shouldn't have to face. There's emptiness now. Their brother is dead. There's an empty chair at the table. There's the silence where there used to be his voice. There's someone who was there and isn't there, and that's wrong. And in one sense, it's actually kind of interesting that Martha is confessing Jesus's ability here. She's, Jesus, you could have saved him. You could have. If you would have been here, you could have stopped death from coming. You, you could have made this all better. Like, isn't it interesting how faith sometimes still finds a voice underneath the pressure of pain? So on one hand, there's like this deep longing for what didn't happen. But then there's this other feeling, like this darker feeling, something harder. So this deep longing for what didn't happen, but then there's like this subtle, tentative, but still accusative, why didn't it happen? This is like, Jesus, if you would have been here, but you weren't. Jesus, if you would have reached out, but you didn't. Jesus, if you would have come, but you stayed You weren't there. You didn't reach out. You stayed where you were because maybe, Jesus, maybe, maybe you just don't care. Insight. If the enemy can't get you to doubt Jesus' ability, he will definitely try to get you to doubt his goodness. And that's where heartache turns into heartbreak and where we become so spiritually nearsighted that we can't see past our own pain and the simmering sorrow on the stove boils over into scalding rage. And you can almost hear her like squeezing the words out, confessing in pain, wrenching her emotions down, preaching the gospel to herself in verse 22, where she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you like, if only the messiness of this emotional tension that's just welling up in Martha. And we've all felt that. Like I felt that I've been there. Because life deals us terrible stuff sometimes. I've been in those hospital rooms and you have too. I've been there as a pastor and I've been there as a dad. I've been there in that living room, right? When Mandy and I have had one of those conversations where you just go like, oh, how'd this get so off track? Like, if only God. I've been there as a parent where you just shake your head not knowing what to do with kids and you go, oh, if only. Those places where the only words louder than Lord, I know you can are Lord, why didn't you? Being there isn't the problem though. I don't really think it is. Being there is not the problem, not really, because sometimes life just hurts. We have to deal with this stuff in life. It just shows up and it just, we go, ah. Being there isn't the problem, but staying there. If you stay there, 
Disappointment with God becomes distance from God and relationship with Jesus becomes reluctance toward Jesus and discipleship calcifies and becomes cold and cynical. If the, if the enemy can't get you to doubt Jesus' ability, he will definitely try to get you to doubt his goodness and his love for you. And we find ourselves believing the subtle lie that he doesn't have our best interest at heart, that he isn't working his sovereign plan out for our good, that he's holding back and he's holding out. He can deliver, but he won't. And he won't because he doesn't care, not for you. So what's Jesus' response? In verse 23, he says this, five words, your brother will rise again. And Martha, ever dutiful, runs to her theology in verse 24. She says, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's talking about this like very popular belief in Jesus's day that God through Messiah will raise the faithful dead at one point and call them to himself. But Jesus is about to say something to Martha that blows her mind and stops her in her recite my perfect little theology tracks. He isn't content just to talk about what he will do then. He wants her to see who he is now. And then here come the words that change the game in verse 25. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the question, do you believe this? That's an unbelievable statement. I am the resurrection and the life. What's he saying? Two things. I am the resurrection, meaning like, I'm not just going to be at the resurrection. I'm not just going to direct the resurrection, or I'm not just going to call for it or perform it or provide it or bring it or model it. I am the resurrection. And then he says, not only that, I am the life, not just that I made life, gave life, create life, sustain life. All that's amazing. But he says, no, I am the life. There is no life outside of me. This is an unbelievably bold claim to a woman who just lost her brother. And on the face of it, it sounds a little unfeeling, like not the right time to talk theology, bro. And a little bit like self-centered, like who said this was about you? Like this is a woman grieving. Normal rabbis don't talk like this. Good teachers don't talk this way. Leaders with quippy and quaint, warm and fuzzy, pious spiritual sentimentalities don't talk like this. But Jesus is saying something that absolutely demands a response. He's either 100% right or he's 100% crazy. And this is the masterstroke of Jesus' words to Martha. He makes her personalize her faith because he asks her a question. He says, do you believe this? What's he saying? Do you believe that I am? the resurrection and the life. He converts the object of her faith from a what to a who. It's like, I'm not interested in just what you believe, Martha. Do you believe me? Which is so beautiful because for Martha, pain is a problem. And for Jesus right now, pain becomes the platform. Martha wants to deflect her tension. And for now, Jesus actually wants to deepen the tension. And just to push this for us in 2022 North Canton, We've got to ask that same question. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is life? I mean, I know he is, and I know he's, he's life for me. I know he is my life. Is he your life that demands a personal response? What does that even mean for Jesus to be your life? Um, it's been about 13 hours since I've quoted C.S. Lewis, so let me give you his take on this. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And here it is. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
You ever heard that? I have a variation of that. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so before the curtain closes on scene two, what's Martha's response to Jesus' question? Verse 27, she said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. And this is totally me, but like I imagine her with her head bowing low, her eyes barely able to look at Jesus, like hands clenched, white knuckled, wringing out her faith like the last drops in a washcloth, like, Yes, Lord, I believe end scene two. Don't you get the impression that Jesus does not tolerate low opinions about him? Don't you get the impression that Jesus is like all or nothing at all? Don't you get the impression that Jesus wants to ask you the same question? Do you believe this? Hmm. Scene three. Take a look at verse 28. When she had said this, that's Martha, She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, that is Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And now when Mary came to Jesus, or where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, oh man, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does those words sound at all familiar to you? Here's the scene in case you didn't catch it. Quick recap. Martha comes out to meet Jesus first. She's assertive and she's aggressive and she runs out to Jesus and she says, if you were here. And Jesus says, well, do you believe me? And she says, yes. So then Martha runs back to the house while Jesus kind of stays. And then after a private conversation with her sister Mary, who's more contemplative, more reflective, more quiet, Mary runs out to Jesus. The text says she rose quickly, verse 29. She left quickly, verse 31. And then she collapses at Jesus' feet in verse 32 with this question. And her first words are, Jesus, if you. Do you think it's at all possible that those two sisters compared notes back here before Mary left the house? So Jesus' response, verse 33. And guys, this is probably one of the most beautiful scenes in the entire Bible. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So two things happened first. Two wonderfully powerful Greek words in verse 35. Greatly moved and greatly troubled. Or sorry, deeply moved and greatly troubled. First, deeply moved. It means to snort with indignation. Like there's anger underneath there. Like, no, this isn't right. It's like this. 
But then this greatly troubled, it means to agitate or to make turbulent. It's literally what would happen if you have a glass of wine and you swirl it to stir up the sediment. It means to make it cloudy. One commentator describes Jesus' reaction as giving way to such distress of spirit as made his body tremble. This is Jesus, 100% divine and 100% human, just coming together. And then overcome with emotions, Jesus just gives way to weeping. This is spontaneous and it's genuine. Have you ever thought about this, that the pain and the sorrow and the death of this world is worth the weeping of the Lord? Have you ever personalized that? Like the pain and the sorrow that you experience, and it could be family-related, it could be personal, it could be job-related, it could just be junk, like this nameless emotions that like float around under the surface of our souls. Do you ever think that that is worth the weeping of the Lord? You are that loved to have him weep. Interestingly, though, this is the third time that weeping is mentioned in this story. Verse 34 with Mary, and then verse 34 again with her fellow mourners. In that case, it's this loud, they're two different words. Those words are this loud, demonstrative wailing. In the case of the professional mourners, it's probably like performative weeping. But then the, the word in verse 35, Jesus wept, that's a much different word. It's this deeper subterranean anguish, this grief that's like barely audible. It's a much different kind of wailing. Charles Spurgeon, in his nearly 7,000 ex, 7, word exposition of those two words, Jesus wept. How you get a 7,000 word sermon out of two words? That's beyond me. Most of mine are about 4,000. So this is just something else. Spurgeon puts it like this. He says, Between the indignation at the powers of evil, grief for the family who had been bereaved by death, sorrow over those who stood by in unbelief and distressing realization of the effects of sin, the Lord's heart was evidently in a great storm. Instead of the thunder of threatening and the lightning of a curse, all that was perceptible of the inward tempest was a shower of tears. And so with the weight of all that, one translation rightly puts it that Jesus burst into tears. And then the sideline cynics offer their caustic comment in verse 36. So the Jews said, now see how he loved him. But then some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And there's the doubt. There's the raised eyebrow of disbelief and the cold sneer of cynicism as if to say death Death is a funny way to show someone you love them, Jesus. How can love and death ever come together? What kind of an idea is that? How could God ever link love for someone and death in the same place? What business do they have? How could God receive glory from somebody's death? Some Messiah you are. So with that question hanging in the air, scene three ends and scene four is about to open because here's the best part. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, same word, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay across it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, sister of the dead man, I love this, said to him, Lord, uh, 
by this time there will be an odor because he's been dead for three days. And Jesus said to her, did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so she, they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then this quick little aside to his father where he says, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe, there it is again, that you have sent me. And that's John once more making sure that we know that Lazarus is not the main point here. This little miracle that's about to happen, that's not the main point. This isn't about Jesus and Lazarus. This is about Jesus and you. And so he says in verse 43, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. And that's it. And the story stops. It's kind of surprising to me that John doesn't give us Lazarus's impression of this whole thing. Because I'd really want to know, like, well, what's Lazarus thinking right now? How does he react to this whole thing? But that's secondary. Remember, that's not important. That's immaterial. It's tertiary because John has something else in his mind. Because as miraculous and amazing as this is, John has another point that he's trying to make. This whole scene ends abruptly because John wants to force a question. And here it is. Doubters and disciples and sinners and cynics, all there to see Jesus conquer death and bring life, where would you be? Where do you stand with Jesus? Because it's not enough to admire him or marvel at him or be impressed by him. And the question that Jesus asks Martha is the same question John wants to ask us. It's the same question Jesus is asking us 2,000 years later. Hear me. The enemy doesn't care if you marvel at Jesus. He just doesn't want you to trust him. The enemy doesn't care if you're impressed by Jesus. He just doesn't want you to trust him. The enemy doesn't care if you admire Jesus. He just doesn't want you to trust him. And so to make sure we get this question unavoidably in our crosshairs, John's camera pans out. He does this like drone shot, wide angle thing. And then to heighten the tension and bring us to a point of decision, he drops us into a place that we've not been before in this story. He drops us into this quiet conversation with a slightly suspicious gathered council. And so quickly, Scene 5, verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and they'll take away our place and our nation. Slide down to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Do you feel the dark clouds start to roll in? Like this guy, this man is dangerous. He has got to go whatever it takes. And so the darkened stage is set for the cross. Now think about this with me. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, what obvious thing is he leaving out? What obvious step has to happen before someone is resurrected from the dead? What has to happen first? Death. And this is the wonderful, beautiful paradox of the Christian faith and the gospel is that on the cross, Jesus defeats death 
by death, that in giving his life for us, he gives life to us. It's what Paul had in mind in Philippians chapter 2 when he says this. He says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He died, and so he was exalted. What weird paradox is that? But it's what also gives Paul the further push to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 8, where he says this, I am sure, or it says I've become convinced or I'm persuaded, persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then again to the Corinthians, same idea. He says this, death is swallowed up in victory. And he asks these two like smack talky kind of questions where he says, death Where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in Revelation 1.18, the risen and glorified Christ introduces himself as the one who was dead, but behold, is alive forevermore. And at the end of all things, Revelation 21, this is this great spot where John says this. He prophesies and he looks forward and he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then he who was seated on the throne, and I hardly need tell you who that is, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is not just a story about a guy who walks out of a grave. I mean, that's dramatic and it's impressive, but that is not the point. This is not a description, a disputation, or a depiction. This is an invitation to what? To know the one who we can trust with our past, our present, and our future because he is the only one who has ever conquered death. One word, belief. Belief. It comes up nine times in John chapter 11. Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe, verse 15. He says, whoever believes in me, Martha, do you believe this? Yes, I believe, verse 25. If you believe, I told you, you'd see the glory of God, verse 40. I said this for the, on account of the people standing around so that they might believe, verse 42. See, here's the thing. Everything that I just said, all those great, like, wonderful New Testament promises that death has no sting and nothing can separate us from God, there's no crying in heaven, like all those beautiful ideas, Here's the thing you need to understand. Those are only available for those who believe Christ. Belief is what matters. So hear me out. Jesus' jaw-dropping, show-stopping statement, I am the resurrection and the life, followed by his all-important must-answer question. This is his question, not mine. This is Jesus' words for you, not my words. Him asking, not me. Jesus asked Martha 2,000 years ago, and he's asking you the same thing this morning. This is Jesus' question for you, and it's a question for which you must have an answer. Do you believe? Do you believe he is who he says he is? 
The beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Christianity is this is not about, hey, my parents were Christians and so I guess I'm a Christian. It's definitely not like, hey, I'm born in America and America is sort of a Christian country and so I guess I'm a Christian. Or like I came to church every once in a while or I gave some money or I try and do good things and so I'm a Christian. That's not what this is about at all. This is about something much deeper, something almost invisible. It's this thing inside you that you must answer for yourself. Do you believe? Have you squared with who Jesus is? And you can go, yeah, he's my savior. He's just going to get me out of hell and get me into heaven. But the question is that has to have, is he Lord of your life? Can you say what Martha says here? Yeah, yes, I'm yours. Jesus doesn't want your behavior. He doesn't want empty promises, and he doesn't want your church attendance. He doesn't want your tithing. He doesn't want your good behavior. He doesn't want your good intentions. He wants your heart. He wants you to say, yes, I'm taking everything I am, my entire life, however many years I've been given on planet Earth, and I'm giving them all to you. You tell me what to do. I will follow you. Now, the reason why, for me, this is so important. Last word and then we'll pray. The reason why this is so important to me is I do believe there's a very big difference between somebody saying, yeah, Jesus is my Savior and Jesus is Lord of my life. Practically, those things typically are very, very different in the lives of many of us. And my hope for you is that you can close that gap. My hope for you is that it isn't just like this get out of hell card but that Jesus is actually a relational piece of your life because he loves you and he doesn't want you just off the hook. He wants to be in your life. So do you believe? Let me pray. Lord, we do say thank you so much that over and over and over again, you show that you have power over death, that the grave does not hold you, and so the grave won't hold us. Thank you for doing these amazing things publicly so that we can see them, so we can have evidence to confirm what we dare ourselves to believe, that there is hope beyond the grave and that death will not have the last word, that you do these amazing things to reveal your wonderful heart to us. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us, for dying a death that should have been ours so that we can have a life that we don't deserve. Father, we love you. Thank you so much for watching over us and for carrying us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.